Welcome to episode 13 of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. Now, today I am very excited to welcome Wes Ko. Now, Wes is the co founder of Maven, the world's first digital platform for cohort based courses. To date, they've raised over 25 million for the likes of First Round Capital, Nitesh Banza, and Andrew Chen at Andreessen Horowitz. Previously, she was the co-founder of the Alt-MBA with Seth Godin, growing the Alt-MBA to thousands of alumni in 550 cities in 45 countries and creating the cohort-based course category. She has also built courses for Scott Galloway, David Perel, Tiago Forte, Morning Brew and more. Now, Wes, I've been following your writing on Twitter for quite some time now and have heard many great things from people who have run cohorts with Maven. So thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here, Alex. Awesome. Now, Wes, whilst I was preparing for this podcast, I came across one of your blog articles titled Spiky Point of View. Let's get a little controversial. Now, the first line of that post was, we all live in a noisy world, which I thought was very fitting for the theme of this podcast. Now, talk me through what a spiky point of view is and how this has helped you in your career. A spiky point of view is a point of view that you have about your area of expertise that other experts might disagree with. So the idea is that in the noisy world that we live in, there are more... there. Most likely, there are a bunch of people, hundreds if not thousands of people, who do something similar to what you do. They might have a similar background, similar educational experience, similar work experience. They may be offering similar products or services. So how do you differentiate yourself? You could do the same old, same old and more of you know what other people are doing, or you could share your spiky point of view. And what I mean by spiky point of view is not necessarily a controversial hot take just for the sake of it. You don't want to just stir the pot because no one, no one wants to be that person, right? Like that's, that's annoying. You know, a spiky point of view is rooted in your personal experience and your expertise. So let's say over the past, you know, 10 years of being a marketer, you realized X and you're surprised that, you know, other marketers aren't seeing that or other clients, you know, frequently are surprised when you, when you share your point of view um, and think, you know, huh, I, I haven't thought about it that way. I, I, believe you. And, and I'm glad that you shared that because that's, that's just something that I hadn't thought about, right? There's this level of insight that, that you want to share with your spiky point of view. So uh, I think it's one of the best ways for you to stand out in a crowd and also lean into your, uh, your hypotheses, your experience, your expertise in a way that isn't just regurgitating what people already know. You really want to add value by sharing something different that makes them see their world in a different way. I really love that. And I think it's all to do with that idea of personal experience, right? Personal expertise and definitely operating in that zone of genius that is so often talked about. Just as we get things whirring over, Wes, I'd love to go back to the start and really understand how you first made your way into the world of startups. Yeah, well, after college, I went into corporate retail. So I was at Gap Inc. in San Francisco, at Banana Republic, Old Navy, uh, the different Gap brands. I worked at L'Oreal. I worked at a beauty company called Beer Essentials that sold in you know, Sephora, Nordstrom, Macy's. And you know, at a certain point, I 
felt like the, the corporate retail structure was a bit too rigid for me. And I started looking into startups. Uh, and so I went to an ad tech startup funded by Sequoia uh, called Flight that eventually got acquired by Snapchat. And uh, that was my first foray into, into startups. Um, and since then, my career is pretty much, I've, I've gone from big companies to increasingly smaller companies um, and uh, until finally starting my own. Um, and so I think, I think with, with tech, you know, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay area. So tech and, um, you know, growing up in Silicon Valley, tech is always, always a big part of kind of the, the background of the context of, of where I was growing up. Um, and I think, you know, in the same way that you kind of want to get away from the things that, you know, originally I thought, no, you know, I don't want to be in tech. It's, it's so boring. It's so you know, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's just boring, you know, and uh, I wanted to be in beauty. I wanted to be in fashion and apparel. Um, and, you know, eventually I found my way back into tech and back into startups. Uh, and I think also, you know, really in the past 10 years, um, startups have become much cooler. Tech has become much cooler. You know, I remember back in 2007, uh, talking to friends about our summer internships. And, um, you know, I, I got an internship at L'Oreal. And was going to spend the summer in New York City, and my friend, uh, my classmate at UC Berkeley at the time, uh, was like, "Oh, like I'm doing an internship at Google. Oh, like I know I wanted that L'Oreal internship too, but you know I guess I'll just do Google." Um, and it's just funny because now you know being being able to internet Facebook, Google, Airbnb, Dropbox, you know HubSpot, all these tech companies um, is a cool thing to do. Yeah, you mentioned the corporate structure was just too rigid. And then obviously your gradual shift to smaller and smaller companies was. What are some of the big cultural differences that you found that you prefer in a more intimate environment with a startup? I think anytime you have more than one person in an organization, you have company politics. So as there are more and more people, there are, you know, there's more and more politics. Um, and so there's, you know, there's still, there's still organizational dynamics that you have to think about in startups, of course. Um, but I think with, with corporate structures, um, you know, that's, it's just more, more part of, of the role. So I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is that if you're at a bigger company, um, a lot of the big creative decisions around the product, around positioning, messaging, those things have already been set. So working, you know, if you're, let's say you're a marketer and you're, uh, you go to Procter and Gamble to work on Pantene, like Pantene has been around for, I don't know, 30 plus years. Like they've been around for a really long time and you're going to get to work on some creative aspects, but you're not going to make major shifts in the brand because the brand is working. It's a, it's, it's a cash cow. It's a money-making machine. Like you should not drastically change Pantene because it's doing great. Right. Whereas at a tech company, at a, at a startup, I should say, um, you have the opportunity to shape what does that product look like? Who are the target customers that we should go after? What is the positioning for what we want to do and how we position ourselves against others in the market? What messaging do we want to use to, 
uh, to really appeal to these target customers. There's so many big questions that haven't been answered yet. And there's a lot of room for creativity to shape and to build. And I think that's that's an opportunity that you really get um, in spades and startups that you don't necessarily get in the same way at bigger companies. Yeah, amazing. Um, I think, you know, speaking of that transition, I'd love to hear your journey to now co-founding Mavenways. Talk me through. Well, my online education journey started in 2014, 2015, when I moved from San Francisco to New York to work with Seth Godin. And at the time, initially, you know, Seth had, had posted a blog post saying that he was looking for a special projects lead for six months. And I had wanted to move to New York for a while. And I thought, okay, great. I'm going to you know, apply for this role. If I don't get it, I'll probably move to New York anyway and just look for, for a full-time role there. Um, and uh, I remember spending you know, very little time, 15 minutes on my application for this role because I thought there must be hundreds, if not thousands of people, Seth fans applying for this job. And what are the chances that I'm going to get it? <laughs> so I don't want to get too emotionally attached to, you know, dreaming about uh, what this role could look like. So I did my application super fast. Turns out two days later, I get an email from Seth Godin himself saying that, hey, loved your application, loved your, your video. Let's, uh, let's hop on a call um, and do an interview. So we did multiple rounds of interviews and whatnot. I eventually got the role. Um, and so I moved to New York. And the initial six months was really about helping Seth figure out what he should do next in his in his work. At that time, he had just sold off a company that he had been working on for the past eight years and was really at a crossroads. So we brainstormed all kinds of ideas, uh, ranging from creating mobile gaming apps to creating um, an ad agency that would work on causes that normally fell in the tragedy of commons, causes like climate change, for example. Um, we talked about uh, a bean to bar chocolate company because Seth is really into great chocolate. Um, and, and eventually we narrowed down, you know, we had this whole whiteboard of it, literally like 50 plus um, index cards with different magnets um, on this board. And we eventually narrowed it down to content and education. We thought about, you know, Seth's entire repertoire of work and his, his you know, past 30 years teaching and sharing ideas, writing books, that there was so much there that he transformed so many lives from, from sharing his ideas and, and inspiring people. And we thought, okay, how can we lean deeper into this? So we started looking into education. And, uh, and at that time, one of my projects that I was also working on was creating Seth's Udemy course. And it became a top selling Udemy course that year. I think it was number one or two. Um, and, and as I was researching Udemy courses, I realized that Video-driven courses, massive open online courses, MOOCs, have a super low completion rate, 6 to 10% completion with a recent MIT study that said that could be as low as 3%, 3 to 6% completion. And it just seemed like a shame that we were putting all this work into creating this amazing video course, but 3 to 6% of people who signed up to do it would actually watch the videos long enough to to even get something out of it like that just seemed like absurd uh, and and at that time you know video driven courses were the dominant form of online learning in the past 15 years it's been the dominant form and we just thought 
that this could not be the pinnacle of what online education was supposed to be. The internet was supposed to transform the way that we learned. And three to 6% of people completing courses like didn't feel like that could be like the end all be all. So we started thinking about, well, how do we, how do we challenge this? How do we challenge this paradigm? And we started kicking around different ideas, including basically inverting everything about MOOCs. So we thought, you know, instead of it being a solo activity, what if, what if this new type of course, this new type of format was all about learning with peers, like-minded peers and other people? And what if instead of being able to watch the videos whenever you want with ultimate convenience, what if there were set start and end dates that actually compelled people to show up and do the work and feel a sense of urgency and focus? And what if instead of it being passive content consumption, it was about active hands-on participation? And so we, we inverted a bunch of things about MOOCs, and this eventually created the Alt-MBA, which eventually kicked off this category of what we now know today as cohort-based courses that, interestingly enough, a couple of years later, my co-founder, Gagan Biani, and I coined the term cohort-based course. You know, back in the day when Seth and I were running the Alt-MBA, launched, launched the Alt-MBA, there, there wasn't really a term for it. It was just this like new thing that people were not sure what it was and they were excited by it. And, um, and you know, since then, with the Alt-MBA at least, we saw a 96% completion rate starting from cohort one. And in the dozens of cohorts that we've done since and thousands of alumni that have gone through it, there've been so many stories of, of uh, alumni who have met each other, who have gone to each other's weddings, that started companies together, who, uh, you know, if someone's flying over Cincinnati or flying over London, they're staying at Alt-MBA alumni's houses. Uh, they're, you know, partnering, collaborating on different projects. So the amount of community that really came out of the Alt-MBA was, was so, so incredible. And it, it actually propelled me to my next phase, which was, you know, after, after the Alt-MBA thought, was there something, something in the water, something in the air at that time when Seth and I were working on this that allowed this to work? Or is this a format that can be replicated for different creators, for different subject matter experts in other categories? So that became the burning question that I really wanted to answer, which led me to work with Scott Galloway and his founding team to design their proprietary sprint format and help grow it to the company that is today, where there's, you know, I think over 100 employees. Back back then, it was, you know, me working with with uh, Section Four CEO Greg Shove and a small team of their small executive team um, to figure out, you know, what what should this core structure really look like? Um, and you know, working with with so working with Section Four's team, I worked with the co-founders of Morning Brew, with uh, the co-founder of Masterclass, Aaron Rasmussen, on his new company Outlier.org. So it was really about proving out this concept of cohort-based learning with other experts in other categories. And what I found from that was, yes, there is something about this cohort-based format that applies for different experts. And that was so, so exciting because it meant that, that other experts could leverage this course format to share their knowledge online, to monetize in a way that uh, was allowed them to charge way more premium prices than, than what uh, you could charge in a, in a video-driven course. So it's better for, for the expert, the instructor, and also better for students because the learning outcomes, engagement rates, et cetera, were, were all better. So it felt very, very win-win. Uh, which eventually led me to co-founding Maven because, you know, as I was building all these different courses, 
the other problem that I that I stumbled upon personally and felt very deeply was the tech stack was completely convoluted, messy, convoluted, uh, disjointed. We were cobbling together a dozen different tools, um, using Zapier to stitch it all together, or needing to hire developers to build something custom. And I was shocked that no one was building a, a one-stop shop, a platform that could offer an instructor everything that they needed, so that they could not need to deal with the the slog of the administrative, logistical, technical pieces, and kind of you know not need to deal with any of that, and instead be able to focus on content, on community, on engaging with their audience. So that's what my co-founders and I set out to build with Maven. Wow. Well, listen, I too love my chocolate away, so I can't wait to hear the release of that venture. But no, I think what a great story. Recognizing that trend in online education and really capturing it. I guess my question from that is, what do you think makes up a high 90s completion rate of these courses? Is it a function of the organization structure or is it the community underpinning the course? Across Maven and the hundreds of cohorts that we've run, the completion rate on average is about 75% and up. So it's a, it's a much higher completion rate than, than the 3 to 6% with MOOCs, video-driven courses. And a big part of that has to do with the structure of this core-based format and how community is built entirely into the format. It is, it is one and the same. You know, when you think about video-driven courses, you're, you're watching these videos by yourself and it's so easy to get distracted to open up a different browser tab, to start checking Instagram, to scroll through Twitter, to think, oh, I'm going to come back to this and then never actually go back to it. Whereas with the core-based course, because of that community-driven aspect, because of the start and end dates, there's so much more of a reason to take the course seriously while it's happening. And I think the accountability piece of that um, is, is super important. You know, the accountability comes from both the the structure itself, but also from the peers that are in your course with you. The other UX designers, if you're taking a design course, the other salespeople, if you're taking a sales course, the other uh, first-time managers, if you're taking a course on people management and, and leadership. So, you know, the chance to meet a bunch of other people who are going through similar struggles, who are uh, in the trenches with you, who are learning alongside you is huge for accountability and uh, for for giving you a reason to want to be there um, in the course and to really engage um, to make the most of it. That's really, really awesome, Wes. And I know you have a brilliant co-founder, Gagan Biani. And how did you two first come to meet? And why is finding a co-founder important to you, Wes? Yeah, the way that the three co-founders met is, is pretty interesting. So um, Goggin, Biani and I went to high school and college together. So we grew up in the same hometown in, in Northern California in the Bay Area. Um, we didn't really know each other too well. Um, he was a year younger than me and you know we didn't really hang out or anything, but we knew of each other and kept in touch. Um, and we reconnected in fall of 2020 because Goggin had just come back from spending a year or two traveling abroad on sabbatical after shutting down his, his previous company. And he was looking to, to start another company. He wanted to get back into ed tech. And he said that everyone who we talked to 
about EdTech and, and where the future of education is going mentioned me. And he was like, I already know Wes. I'm just going to text her. You know, no need for an intro. So we, we reconnected and started started riffing and jamming about uh, about cohort-based learning. And, um, you know, at that time, he I was consulting. Uh, and so he was giving me some advice about my consulting practice. And I was giving him advice about cohort-based learning. Um, and eventually we thought we are both really bullish about cohort-based learning and our skill sets are a pretty good match. Our values are a pretty good match. You know, let's start something together. And and so we did. And so that's that's how the two of us joined up. And then a couple months later, we found our technical co-founder, Shreyan Spensali, who was the first engineer and first employee at Venmo. And Shreyan had seen one of Goggin's tweet threads uh, saying that we were looking for a technical co-founder. And at the time he was at Google because his, his previous startup that he had co-founded called Socratic, also in education, had gotten acquired by Google. And so he was at Google, he was kind of ready to get, get back into the startup world. Um, and he, he, you know, reached out to us and, uh, and so the three of us ended up starting Maven together. Terrific story, Watson. I really, really love that. Um, I guess, you know, digging in a little further, you also have another great essay titled Turn Bugs into Features, which, you know, is, is really about making things you might think as disadvantages, actually making them into your strengths. How have you done this in your career? And I guess from that, what benefits have you seen arise from it, Wes? The idea of turning bugs into features is borrowed from software engineering, where Engineers will, will often joke that, you know, if you point out a bug, they'll say like, oh, it's actually a feature. Um, so, so I think in engineering, it's, it's, you know, less so that, that the bug might actually be a feature. But I think in business and thinking about ourselves as leaders, we can absolutely turn the quote unquote bugs that we see about ourselves into features. And what I mean by that is any personality defect or, um, or aspect about yourself that you think is a disadvantage or, you know, is not great. You can think about uh, doing a thought experiment. What if this were actually an advantage? What if this were actually a feature? And so for myself, for example, for years, I really lamented being an introvert. And I was so jealous of people who were more extroverted that, you know, that, that, uh, be more outgoing, just seem to make life easier, especially as a leader, as a co-founder, uh, as, as a creator. Um, and, and I really wish that I weren't so introverted. And then one day I thought, what if I turned this bug into a feature? What if I thought about all the ways that I bring a unique perspective because of my introvertedness and because I am different from most leaders who are, who are extroverts? And in, in reflecting on that, I realized that I do bring a, a different lens, uh, and that is rooted in, uh, you know, in, in my natural orientation. And that, you know, instead of wishing that I were different, thinking about all the ways that uh, that that having a, a different, you know, less less loud um, personality has benefited me, uh, has really carried me far in my career. So it's really about thinking, you can really apply this idea of turning bucks into features with yourself and your own personality, your own leadership style, and with products. So if you think about a product that you 
that, that you're selling. So let's say you think, oh, our product is so simple. It's too simple. You know, it's, there's not enough features. It only does a few things. Well, there are people out there, customers out there who are looking for something that is simple, that it's easy to use, that, that doesn't have, you know, the kitchen sink full of features and customization that can get really overwhelming. And on the other hand, if your product is very robust and has a ton of features, you might be thinking, oh, I hate how complicated our product is. It's, there's too many features. Customers only use, you know, a fraction of it. Everyone gets confused. You know, this sucks. Well, you can also turn that into that bug into a feature by saying there are people who want that level of detailed customization so that they can use your product to fulfill whatever vision that they have in mind. They want that level of customization. And, and the fact that you offer so many features to tailor to exactly what they need gives them that, that precise control. So I think the, really the, the baseline of turning bugs into features is to, to stop wishing the grass is greener and, uh, and kind of beating yourself up about, oh, you know, woe is me. But instead to think, you know, what if we turn this into something that could be a selling point and found people who would actually appreciate what we have? No, I love that. It's all about turning those disadvantages of ourselves into those strengths. And I think that has applications, not just on a personal level, Wes, but, but also to, to our businesses and our projects alike. I guess spinning the conversation on a little further into sort of the realm of education, where did this fundamental passion for education stem from, Wes? Well, I wasn't a great student. So I think subconsciously it probably stemmed from, from you know, a bit from that. Um, and I think the, iron- the ironic thing is that on the surface, I seemed like a good student. For, for people looking, looking in, you know, from the outside, I had good grades. You know, I seemed to do well in school. It seemed to come easy for me. But under the surface, behind the scenes, it did not come easily for me at all. Um, I, I had a ton of one-on-one tutoring. I went to a ton of, um, like, you know, both one-on-one tutoring plus group classes, SAT classes. Um, you know, I, I distinctly remember, even with all that extra support, feeling like I would never be able to learn certain certain concepts, especially quantitative classes, math, math, science. Like I remember just feeling this, this pit of despair of like, I, I call it futility, I think is a good way to put it. The absolute lack of hope of like, no matter how long I study this, I am positive that I'm not going to get it. Like it, it just, it, and that feeling is just so sad, you know? And, and I felt that way, uh, especially for math classes, pretty much throughout K through 12, through, through college where, you know, first semester, freshman year, I got a C in Calc and it kind of cemented in my mind, like, wow, like, yeah, I am, I am bad at math and I'm never going to get this. And this is, this might impact, you know, my ability to get, to get, you know, I had to apply to the business major at UC Berkeley. Um, and I thought, you know, this is going to affect my chances of getting accepted into the undergrad business school. You know, companies might look at my GPA and, and question like why, why I'm so bad at quant. And it really affected my self-esteem. And it wasn't until actually after I graduated and had been working for a couple of years where I was thinking about applying to business school and uh, lo and behold, business schools were like, Hey Wes, we think your, your work experience is super interesting, but we're seeing these, 
these bad grades on your quant classes and it's kind of worrying and we need to make sure that you could do math. So would you be willing to retake your calc class, the one that you had gotten a C in freshman year? Um, if you do, we would look favorably upon this and we wouldn't, you know, we, we can't guarantee that we're going to let you in, but like it would at least show us that you're not, you're not shit at math. And, and I remember it was this, I was at this crossroads where it was like, oh my God, like this was like the course that was, that, you know, really tore me apart. Like, do I really want to attempt to do this again? If, especially because I feel like I, I'm never going to get it right. Especially with math. And I decided to try it. So I went for it and I signed up for this UC Berkeley extension course, calculus, calc one course, um, in that, that was hosted in, in one of the, um, uh, off, off campus sites in San Francisco. And the class had, I want to say like six to seven people and the professor, professor Jurgen made every single student sit in the front row and every 10 minutes or so he would call on someone and he would go down the row and just call on each person. And he would just, just go down the row. Um, and this was so different from my experience taking Calc one freshman year at Berkeley, where I was, there was, there were literally 800 students in Wheeler Hall in Berkeley, the lecture hall. And I sat in the very back row, checking Facebook and napping until the end of class. And it was just such a night and day experience, that hands-on active learning, the, you know, being being forced, like forced not, is not really the right word, that being encouraged to um, participate, having the structure to participate, having that expectation to participate and having nowhere to hide um, I ended up getting an A in that class. And it was like, it was like spearing my white whale. Like it was this glorious moment where I ended up actually not even, a, not even going to business school. I decided to, to move to New York and start the Alpha MBA with Seth instead and, you know, start our own business school. But, but, you know, that experience of um, retaking Calc and, um, and doing it in this, this completely different learning format really inspired me and, and showed me that, you know, you're not, you're not bad at something, right? Like you're not bad at math or you're not bad at science. You're not bad at writing, whatever. A lot of us tell ourselves that story, but, but how much of that is not having a learning environment that, um, that fit the way that you learn that, you know, engaged you, that, that made you that, you know, that, that sparked that interest in you and made you believe that, that you could learn, you know? And so I think that experience was so formative in helping me see that, learning formats are so important and that a different learning format could result in a totally different outcome, which, which can really change the trajectory of someone's belief in themselves and, and the trajectory of their career. I'm really behind that point, Wes. I think making the learning environment conducive to, yeah, you guessed it, learning. And I've seen it so often going through education, my end, Wes, where, you know, people would just switch off, sit at the back of the class, be on their phones, like you said, and have no real engagement with the teacher versus the, at least the example you gave was, you know, every student was in the front row and, and having that engagement be encouraged, I think is so critical because it really sets apart the sort of average teachers from those who are really pivotal in actually making that change and imparting a lot of insights and a lot of wisdom to to the class and ultimately everyone becomes better off right 
the the learners learn more they, they get more of a sophisticated grasp of the topic and the teacher they feel more compelled to teach because everyone's engaging and it, it isn't just cricket so yeah that's definitely something i can i can get behind i'd love to sort of follow this on with look wes is the traditional education system broken and I guess from that, you know, what opportunities are there for finding the right fix with cohort-based courses? I think the traditional education system is is definitely ready for uh, a bit of, of a refresh. So I don't know if I would call it broken per se, but I do think that cohort-based learning um, is another option for uh, adult learners who want to continue upskilling. And I think that the reason why this is so exciting to me is because when you think about K through 12 and college, and then maybe getting a master's degree, like that's pretty much where most people's formal education ends. So you spend the first 20 years of your life with school kind of as your main thing, and then you start working. And then all of a sudden for the next 30 years that you work, like there's, there's no formal learning. Like that to me is just really, really bonkers. Like, the, the amount that, that, that working professionals have to cobble together and research up themselves, read books themselves, um, join meetup groups if there are some, you know, that are relevant to your work or, you know, uh, learn, learn purely on the job from coworkers who are patient enough to teach you. Like it just feels so, um, inefficient and also ineffective that some of the, the most um, important problems that we are solving at work and the career, um, the, the, the goals that we're trying to work on in our careers, that there's not a, there's not a more structured way to, um, to learn the skills that you would need to learn. Um, and so I think with core-based learning, it's, it's introducing these, these weeks, these pockets, these, these moments where, um, let's say if you are, if you're a marketer and your company wants to dive deeper in SEO, you know, instead of scrolling through tons of pages of, of, you know, shitty search results about SEO, you can take a course from an expert who you respect on the topic of SEO to get you going. Same if you want to do paid media for the first time, or same if you are a UX designer who has kind of capped out on, you know, learning, teaching yourself design through Udemy and Skillshare, you want that community where you can talk about nuances, where you can develop your sense of taste, you can develop these, these skills that are, that are um, higher order thinking skills, analysis, critique, being able to see things in ways that, you know, the layperson, the civilian doesn't. Like, these are all things that you can't really learn on your own by reading a textbook or by reading blog articles online. You really only learn these skills by practicing and doing and then doing and then realizing that you suck and you failed um, and then doing again and then talking about it with other people and and getting their feedback and and then trying again and then improving a bit and then right so there's that sense of struggle that usually accompanies real learning and most of us as working professionals have to do that alone which is a, a pretty lonely journey and some of the most exciting problems that we are solving at work like like, why should we have to do that alone? Why, why shouldn't we be able to have better resources, have better course, uh, have better structures and uh, in the form of courses where 
um, where you can be able to learn from an expert and from a from a community. When running one of these courses, Wes, how important is it to establish a distinguishable value add versus, say, taking a more generalist approach and being broad in the topics that you teach? You should really be as specific as you can get. So if you're teaching a course, let's say you're a marketer and you want to teach marketing for everyone, that is a bad course topic because A, right. the scope is way too big, right? B, like who is the target student for that? So even if you said marketing for startups, like that's still quite broad. Like what kind of startups are we talking about? Uh, and what stage and what industry? Uh, and, and even marketing, like from a topic perspective, there are so many subtopics of marketing. Is it product positioning? Is, is, it, is, it, is it product marketing? Is it positioning? Is it um, uh, understanding your customers? Is it uh, copywriting? Is it SEO? Uh, is it channel marketing? Is it social? Like there's so many different kinds of marketing. So getting to something more specific, like um, product positioning for um, startup founders. Right, like that's that's more specific because it's it's targeting founders, which it's not like everyone, um, or um, social for um, or community management for um, you know operators or something, right? Like something like that is is a, you want to get as, as specific as you possibly can, so that students who are looking for this topic can find you, and most of all are not just looking for just general quote unquote marketing. Um, there's, there's usually something specific that they, uh, are dealing with, uh, that, that they want to learn more about. So the more specific that you can get, the better it's, it's really similar to creating, uh, to, to being a consultant, for example, like if, being a consultant, creating a product, if you're too broad with who you serve, people just assume that you are not for that. I agree, Wes, you've absolutely got to stand for something, be on one side of the fence and, say what you believe otherwise you know if 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 you're if you're more more generalist and don't really have that focus inside inside the aperture then you know who who's really gonna get behind you and form affinity to what you believe in i think community is something i'm very passionate about too wes so how does maven build communities with its creators both before during and after the course we have a three-week Maven course accelerator, which is a free course that I teach that teaches you everything that you need to know end-to-end about building a successful core-based course. So starting with thinking about course market fit, are you the right person teaching the right topic to the right target audience at the right price point with the right positioning, thinking about creating a curriculum, thinking about what to write on your landing page, how to market your course. So there's a ton of community in that because we offer the structure for the course and we have, we have great content, but what students and what you know, our students are instructors in this case, what instructors really get out of it is an amazing community of other experts in, a, you know, dozens of different industries and categories who are also teaching their expertise and engaging with their communities. And so there's this really, safe, non-judgmental, non-competitive space where you can meet a bunch of other people who, you know, might be, let's say consultants who work with different clients and now want to add um, a course 
to to their portfolio of offerings. Or you might meet someone who recently quit their job as an in-house product manager and they now want to make their product management course a full-time uh, you know, main revenue driver for themselves. You know, or you might meet um, a uh, an executive coach who you know wants to uh, you know add, add a course to, to what they're doing. So it's a bunch of different people who are building course businesses who are able to learn from each other, and it's really you know eating our own dog food because the one of the best reasons that students take course based courses in the first place is because they want to meet other people. They want to learn from other people, not just from you, the instructor. So you, the instructor, might be the reason that they uh, they first sign on, but the value that they get is very much from interacting with fellow peers who are dealing with similar struggles, who really understand them, feel you know feel the, the same pain points that they're going through, um, are are you know just as motivated to think of creative solutions to those problems because they're living it themselves, uh, and there's so much that 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 you get from from being around um, a like-minded group. And then afterwards, we have um, we have a community that we that we poured everyone into, so that after the course, you still get to continue learning from uh, from fellow course creators. And it really is a long journey, right? Starting a creating a course and and teaching it. There's there's so much room for improvement with every cohort that you run. Um, it's kind of like starting a business, starting a company. Um, there's there's kind of no upper bound for how much you can improve. And so we want that community so that. Um, so that these different course creators, these instructors can continue to keep in touch and share, hey, here's what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? Yeah, I really do think the value you derive from these cohorts can be found equally in the people you do the course with as as well as, you know, the the fundamental teaching. So I think, you know, it, it's it's such an excellent ecosystem to really, well, one, not only encourage learning, but two, you know, this is this is something that everyone can really get behind, be part of, and ultimately support one another after the course as well. So I think that's really, really terrific. What would be the greatest lesson you've learned from building Maven so far, Wes? The biggest lesson would probably be to not compare your first cohort to someone else's 50th cohort. I see so many experts and instructors get bogged down with analysis paralysis and feel self-conscious because they see other people running amazing courses, creating amazing content, and they get really self-conscious about how their course, their first cohort, the one that they're working on now is not, is not that polished or it's not, you know, it's not as good as they want it to be. And it's really unfair for yourself to, to compare your V1 to someone's finished product they have been honing and iterating and improving over years. So that's probably the, the biggest lesson is don't don't compare yourself to people who have you know been doing this for, for much longer. You should definitely take inspiration from them, but the best way for you to learn is not to necessarily continue tweaking behind the scenes, but to ship what you have in a in a you know small way if that helps you test out uh, what you're doing. But but definitely ship because you're going to learn so much more from doing and shipping and getting feedback and tightening that feedback loop over time um, than you will from just analyzing more. No, I love that. You can't compare your step one to someone else's step 
83 you know it, it, it's it's completely um completely different so i'm i'm right behind that what does the future look like wes you know wh- where do you see maven over the next decade i think in the next 10 years courses are going to become as popular as books are for experts you know most experts when they think about uh an artifact that they want to produce um that kind of encompasses their work and their ideas they think about a book you know so many of us in the back of our heads are like one day i want to write a book i think in the next 10 years that's going to shift and people are going to start saying i one day i want to run a course and i think that that courses are going to become increasingly popular of a way for experts to both monetize their craft and their knowledge and their expertise but also to for in-house operators to be able to share their knowledge more broadly you know i think right now with courses a lot of people think you know do i have to do this full time is this something that uh you know i have to own my own uh consulting practice for or you know be kind of run my do my own thing to be able to do a course and more and more we're seeing in-house operators also run courses and they might not do it as often as someone who's doing a course full time but a couple times a year uh teaching a course on design or teaching a course on investing or teaching a course on product as a way to showcase their knowledge to develop their thought leadership you know in the same way that tweeting now or writing on medium or writing a substack these are all ways to share your knowledge as a as an operator i think creating a course and and running that course is going to be increasingly a way that um that experts start to both monetize their knowledge and also build community and and share their expertise that's really tremendous you know such a such a great viewpoint as to sort of you know where where the future is going and i think it's such a great mechanism to monetize your craft and your expertise like you said was i think it you know having engaging interactive learning uh, i definitely see that as a super popular medium that can definitely rival books so really excited to see that going on into the future now wes tell me what does your perfect day look like hmm um well i think my schedule now is is pretty great and i kind of i've been very intentional about um arranging my schedule so that i can i can maximize productivity and joy throughout the day so um up until noon i have no meetings it's my deep work time and then noon to 6 i have meetings and then 6 and after is you know back in the deep work time and kind of catching up on on the different decisions that happen during the day different things i need to follow up on feedback i need to give my team so before i used to I used to get really um flustered from so much task switching from having a meeting here and then you know 30 minutes of of time to to get into deep work and by the time I was able to task switch it would be another meeting and you know it was just interruption after interruption um and structuring my day like this where I have a chunk of deep work time um and then a bunch of meetings and then you know a chunk of of deep work time again um uh, has been really really amazing so um I I know it sounds kind of cliche to say like oh like each day is 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 my perfect day but I really think that it's it's not so much about what is my perfect day but more about what is my average day 
And how can I get my average day to be as close to my perfect day as possible? And I'm pretty proud at, of, of the structure that I've created because I think I'm, I'm getting pretty close there. Yeah, I've found that too, as you know, when you're getting sort of pulled in multiple directions and then, you know, all, all of a sudden that time you allocated for deep work, all of a sudden it, it, it soon disappears. So I'm a big believer in compartmentalizing your day and breaking it up into these chunks so that you can do it all, but at the cadence and time so that you can give each task the, the, the application and time that it ultimately deserves. So yeah, big, big believer in that. Now, 24 hours before this podcast was, I reached out to Twitter to ask them questions they want to ask you. Now, there was an incredible response, Wes, so we'll have to dive right in. Does that sound good? Yeah, let's do it. Perfect. So kicking things off, Andrew Stansel asks, in the world where everyone is an expert and there are courses everywhere, what makes a successful one stand out? Yeah, great question. I think if you look at other categories and functions, uh, there's a lot to learn there. So if you look at... Um, if you look at freelance marketers or copywriters, there are copywriters charging $20 an hour and there are copywriters charging $5,000 an hour and, and everything in between. So if the market has a lot of copywriters, what makes a copywriter stand out? If the market has a lot of product managers, what makes you stand out as a product manager, right? Like there are so there most categories have a bunch of people doing a similar thing, uh, charging a whole range of price, price range. Um, and so I think one thing to really think about is what is the value, the demonstrated value that you bring that is scarce in the market? And what is your track record for delivering that value? So I think the age of the internet is amazing because we don't need to rely on credentials anymore. You don't need to say, I went to copywriter school or I don't know, advertising school, uh, or I got a degree in business with a focus on product management. Like you don't need to say that because you can have your work speak for itself. You can point to links of your, the articles that you've written. You can, you can link to microsites that you've built. You can link to GitHub. You can link to your Twitter or your Instagram. Like it's so much more valuable for a prospective student to be able to see your body of work, to be able to get value from you over time before you ask them to take your course. Then it is if you just straight up said like showed up one day with, you know, have not having offered much value before and just said like, Hey, everyone buy my course. You know, the, the likelihood of people converting for that is, is pretty low. But if someone has been following you for the past couple of years, or even past couple of months, and they've been seeing awesome stuff pop up on their feed from you, valuable insights, valuable knowledge that you're in their inbox, you're on their Twitter feed, uh, you know, like, and they're, they're getting value from you over time. All of a sudden, when you say, Hey, I have a course now that, that it goes from being, um, a taxing ask to being a gift. It becomes a gift because it's like, wow, finally I can learn from so-and-so, um, in this structured way. And I've been wanting to do that. This is a gift. Let me sign up for that. Yeah, that's such a terrific approach. And I think, you know, the, the latter that you mentioned there was, is often outdated. And I think people, at least um, a lot of people that, that I interact with that are a little older than myself, you know, are, are, are still ask, you know, oh, 
let me see some credentials or, you know, <laughs> you know, let me, let me tap into this when, you know, all, all of a sudden, you know, pointing them in the direction of your writing, um, your, your newsletter, the, the conversations that, that you're having with, with great minds, you know, I think it absolutely does speak for itself. So yeah, yeah, totally behind that. Yeah. One. And one more thing on that people, people want to take courses from instructors who will solve their problems. People want to hire consultants and coaches who will solve their problems. People want to pick vendors who will solve their problems. So if you show up in someone's doorstep and you can show that you can solve their problem, that completely changes the conversation. So I think a big part of standing out is getting good at solving expensive, hairy, juicy problems that people are willing to pay to solve, getting really good at that. And then also the marketing piece of getting in front of the right people so that the people who have those problems know that you exist. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's all about that. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's, no, yeah, I think there's a, a great saying in marketing, right? No one cares what you do. Everyone cares what you can do for them. <laughs> and I think that couldn't be, couldn't be more true when, you know, exactly. if you can demonstrate the problem that you're solving, uh, with, you know, tangible value that you've been providing beforehand, then, you know, you're, you're well on your way, Wes. Now, next question. Coming in hot, James Camp asks, what are the biggest obstacles experts face in the transition to being a creator? Hmm. I need to think more on this one. I think my initial thoughts here are that you can be a creator without being an expert. And you can be an expert without being a creator. So I'm still thinking about the boundaries of this idea. But if you are a creator without being an expert, you're, uh, you're taking a journalistic approach, right? You can, you can write about uh, different topics. Let's say you're a Substack creator, Substack writer. You're, you're posting about different topics that you not, you're not necessarily an expert in yourself, but you do deep dive, you interview other people, like you're kind of curating. So, so that's kind of one bucket. The other bucket is if you are an expert, but not a creator. So those are consultants or, you know, operators with, deep subject matter expertise who might not necessarily be sharing as publicly yet. So I think there's a lot of people in, in this latter bucket where, you know, if you are working in house or if you are a consultant, a lot of the work that you do is more, um, is more private, right? It's private in the sense that it's within the company. And then if you're, if you're consulting, it's within your client base, which is still pretty private. Whereas, a creator is creating content that can be publicly viewed, that is interacting with kind of a one-to-many approach versus a one-to-one approach. So I think there's a, a bit of a, a jump there from going from, you know, if you if you are an expert that's not yet a creator to thinking about how do I, um, how do I create more publicly um, and share my knowledge more publicly? I think there's a, a bit of a mindset shift. Um, and we're seeing, at least on the Maven side, more and more experts start to embrace that mindset shift because they realize that they are sharing a bunch of really smart things to their clients or they're saying a bunch of really smart things internally at their companies uh, that could be really applicable to a bunch of other people outside of these, these limited situations. And so um, sharing more publicly gives you the platform to be able to share that knowledge and impact a broader group of people. Excellent. Now, good friend, Dave Klein, he asks, what's your view of the five-year bull case for Maven and cohort-based learning communities in general? 
I'm a huge fan of Dave. So I love that he asked this question. Um, Dave is a, an instructor on Maven with an amazing course on people management. Um, I would say that the, the bull case is, is what I had mentioned a bit earlier with, with in the next five, 10, 15 years, everyone will have a course. Every creator, every expert, you know, it's, it's not going to happen all at once, but we are going to get to a place where the course becomes a new book and it becomes the, you know, the thing that people have parked in the back of their minds. Like, you know, eventually one day I want to write a book. Uh, Experts are going to start saying, eventually I want to create a course. Tremendous. No, I I really love that. You know, it, it almost becomes part of the identity was so yeah. Great, great point. Now, Clint Murphy asks, what are the advantages of cohort models over the long run? And what is the projected saturation point, if any? I think over the long run, cohort-based courses on the instructor side are increasingly valuable because they are assets. So if you think about... um, creating a newsletter, for example, or creating a podcast or, or even Twitter threads, um, you, you need to create content every week to really keep up that cadence. Whereas if you build a core-based course, it's an asset that's highly leveraged that you can quote-unquote turn on whenever you want to run another cohort. And you can run 50 cohorts with the majority of the structure and content that you built in cohorts you know, one and two. So you're not needing to redo everything from scratch every single week or every time you want to you want to run your course, and that becomes really powerful because it, your your brand and your course, the value of your course compounds over time. So I was um, talking to Tiago Forte, who's an advisor for Maven, and he recently was the guest speaker in our Maven Course Accelerator, and he was telling telling our Maven instructors that with his course, Build a Second Brain, in cohorts one through nine. He did decently well. He was making, you know, good-ish money. Uh, but it, starting cohort 10 and beyond is when he really started um, to, to see the benefits of his course. And he's made over $5 million in the past couple of years from 3,000 students total, lifetime, from running his course. If you look at the internet, 3,000 people is very small. That's a very small number of students to have. And to be able to make such a great living and such such great revenue doing it is, is pretty amazing. So I think over the long haul, um, a single course can really uh, be a huge revenue driver for you. Um, and it's kind of different from, from what most people think, which is, oh, well, should I do, should I do a bunch of, di- should I offer a bunch of different offerings? Um, should I do coaching and consulting implementation? Should I have a video driven course on Teachable and Skillshare? Should I also sell ebooks? Uh, should I do a mastermind group? So yes, you can do all those things and have a course be one of those products, but you can also do what Tiago does, which is just one thing, which is this course. And I think that that example of one product being able to over the long arc, um, create so much value for your community and so much value for yourself from a financial standpoint, I think is really, really incredible. Wow. What an incredible success story there, Wes. I think it really does show the power and at least the economic opportunity that, that running these courses can, can create for, for everyone. I think that's really, really terrific. 
Well, Wes, we've actually come to the end of our conversation today, but I've so enjoyed diving into the future of education, hearing how things are going with, with Maven, and it's been really, really awesome diving in. So I'm so thrilled we got to do it, Wes. Thanks, Alex. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me.